Truth Espresso, episode 248. Face it, we all would rather sleep in this morning. <sighs> That's why God gave us espresso to kickstart our zombified corpses into hyperdrive. <laughs> and now, giving your mind and soul the morning shot of truth it craves. This is Truth Espresso with Daniel Minnick. Hello friends, family, foes, and lurkers alike. This is your host, Daniel Minnick. My sweet, beautiful wife and co-host, Chelsea, is here with me once again to talk about some recent court rulings. And we've been going through a little series talking about Supreme Court gestering for Supreme Court rulings that happen at the end of June. But we're going to kind of continue that, even though this isn't the Supreme Court, it's a federal court. But it deals with a lot of gesturing from the defendants. And so since this is not a Supreme Court decision, it's uh, one judge and the case is not entirely finished yet. And there's still a lot of sparks flying. And so a sweetheart ready to talk about this particular federal court case on Missouri versus Biden. Yeah, let's tackle this one. So do you want to open up a little bit by bringing up a few verses kind of to introduce a little bit about the broad ranging and impacting topic at hand? I was just thinking as I was reading through the notes that you put together on this, which thank you for doing that. It was kind of a busy week for me and you did an awesome job. You've been doing the notes a lot recently, (laughs) which is very helpful. So thank you. But reading through your notes and just thinking about how this particular case is just suppressing speech and how the Bible talks about how we're supposed to open our mouth and be a representative to actually speak for those who can't speak. And so this case is really important because we need to make sure our freedom of being able to speak is not hindered. And Proverbs 31 verses 8 through 9 says, Open thy mouth for the dumb and the cause of all such as are appointed to destruction. Open thy mouth, judge righteously, and plead the cause of the poor and needy. And I just love how those two verses talk about how that's kind of our role as Christians to be that voice for those who don't and to stand up and to have discussions and to be able to speak freely. And I mean, it sounds almost commanding, open thy mouth, open thy mouth. And then you've got government here and social media that's saying, no, close your mouth. No, (laughs) we're going to suspend you. So. I just liked those two verses when thinking about that. Makes me think about how we have two eyes and two ears, but only one mouth. So, yeah, God created us in such a way that we are to observe things, and then we are to speak about what we observe, and we're to make sense of what we observe. And the Bible talks a lot about speaking truth. It's important that what we say, Ecclesiastes mentions about every idle word will be brought 
to judgment. And so, yes, speaking is very important. Speaking truth, in this case, really hits a lot on how the federal government was involved in trying to stop the mouths of people from speaking truth. So those are some good verses there, sweetheart. And so, for federal court gesturing for this episode, we have not, in this case, reached the Supreme Court, but I have a hunch that eventually it will, if the federal government does not win in the appeals process. But let's go to the current case that has not finished yet, called Missouri versus Biden. And the topic is whether the government colluded with social media companies to suppress or censor speech about topics against the government's desired narratives. While the court cases that we looked at, the Supreme Court ones, would be usually private disputes and the case would go up to the Supreme Court to resolve that, this is a case involving the federal government being tyrannical over people's, basically their private speech. So this is a case involving whether the government itself has been violating the First Amendment, the right to freedom of speech, that the Constitution recognizes. Now, this case was assigned to Judge Terry Alvin Doughty. The original complaint was filed May 5th, 2022, and Judge Doughty issued a preliminary injunction on July 4th, 2023. So, more than a year later after the case was filed, there is a lot of activity going on, a lot of motions and memorandums and so on, and depositions and notes and so on. But uh, July 4th, which I think was a very fitting time for Judge Doughty to issue a preliminary injunction on Independence Day, talking about one of the rights that people fought for and gained independence on this day. And so I think there's probably some attention to that. I would say good on Judge Doughty for this. And so now, who are the plaintiffs and who are the defendants? And this case is rather large. There's a slate of plaintiffs and uh, likewise a slate of defendants. So the original plaintiffs were the state of Missouri and the state of Louisiana suing, saying that they have an interest in making sure the there's a free flow of information and the government isn't censoring or forcing them to be involved in helping the government censure speech. And eventually, the states were joined along in the process by some individuals. So the individuals that ended up joining the plaintiffs were Dr. Aaron Cariotti, who is a professor of psychiatry and bioethics for the Ethics and Public Policy Center, Dr. Martin Koldorf, who is a Swedish professor of medicine at Harvard. Jim Hoft, who is the founder of the Gateway Pundit uh, news website. And Dr. Jayanta, or Jay Bhattacharya, who is an Indian-American professor of medicine and economics at Stanford. And uh, Jill Hines, who is the co-director of Health Freedom Louisiana. And so Missouri and Louisiana, the two state governments that were involved in this, Jill Hines, who co-directs Health Freedom Louisiana, was also someone of interest in being a plaintiff here. 
And I'd like to point out that Dr. Martin Koldorf and Dr. J. Bhattacharya, who are among the plaintiffs here, were both, along with uh, Dr. Sunetra Gupta, who is an Indian-British epidemiologist from Oxford, the three of them together, so two of the plaintiffs, along with this third one, co-authored what's called the Great Barrington Declaration in October 2020. And so that is rather significant because one of the topics that has to do with government censorship was with the virus pandemic. And these three were involved in creating the Great Barrington Declaration in October 2020 that showed their proposal for what the policies should be against lockdowns and mask mandates. And they proposed that basically policies should be directed at trying to keep keep the spread of the virus to those who are the most vulnerable, like elderly or immunocompromised, but otherwise those who are considered younger and healthier should basically go about their business as usual to help society keep moving and not subject everyone to these draconian policies. And then ultimately that would lead to herd immunity more quickly. And then also of note was Robert F. Kennedy Jr. of the Children's Health Defense and also Dr. Robert Malone weren't listed as plaintiffs, but they kind of joined the interest of the plaintiffs by way of submitting Amici Curiae to the court. I love that we know like who the plaintiffs are because I'm like, oh, I want to look up this doctor and read some more information about what he says and stuff. It's just neat to see that there are people willing to stand up for truth and stand up for what's right, even though they get criticized or some doctors have even lost their license and can't practice um, or have to do independent practice because they don't have privileges at a hospital and stuff. It just seems like there's a lot of people that went through the fire over these last few years, but that didn't change their stance because like you mentioned earlier, they're speaking truth. And I think when you speak truth, that ultimately truth is what will stand up, but there might be some bumps along the way, I guess. I had kind of followed Dr. Martin Koldorf and Dr. J. Bhattacharya, Dr. Sunetra Gupta. I think if I recall, all three of them were on the Tom Woods show I think Koldorf and Bhattacharya have been guests on the Tom Woods show at least once, if not several times. So kind of early on, I would hear their opinions against the grain of policies and stuff. So I'd be kind of cheering on their influence. And they, you know, we're talking about Harvard, Oxford, and Stanford here. We're not talking about state colleges. We're talking about the Ivy League colleges. And yet they were treated as if, oh, you know, they don't know what they're talking about. And they have just as much right to be experts as anyone in the government's expert class. So now the defendants of this case include, first of all, President Joe Biden. You know, naturally, it's what makes the case Missouri versus Biden. And then people in the regime there along with him, former White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki, Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, not to be confused with Vivek Ramaswamy, who's a, a contender for the presidential race of 2024, <laughs> Secretary of Health and Human Services Xavier Becerra, Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas, 
former NIAID director, Dr. Anthony Fauci, and Nina Jankowitz of the very briefly formed and disbanded Disinformation Governance Board. And now if you remember seeing the video of her singing this Mary Poppins parody song <laughs> of supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, making fun of her critics, and then the CDC, the DHS itself, and the CISA as... Um, are also listed as defendants, those agencies there. So it's quite the case. Lots of plaintiffs, lots of defendants, and lots of topics. So my question for you in this section is, okay, so President Joe Biden's listed as a defendant. Does he actually give testimony or... As far as I know, he never had a deposition. So basically, you know, a lawyer would represent him. And I'm sure, you know, an attorney would probably represent several people. So it's just kind of like, well, you know, he doesn't have to show up unless, you know, there's some kind of motion that would be granted to have him be deposed and answer questions based on what he said. Otherwise, he only participates by proxy of his attorney. So I wonder why they don't have a few other kind of key people or groups in there, like who? Oh, the WHO. Yeah. yeah. And Bill Gates. Yeah, there's plenty of people (laughs) who could be involved. It was just a matter of what the plaintiffs, as far as originally the states of Missouri and Louisiana, filed as far as documents showing specific things that were said at specific times by whom that would end up censoring speech. So we know there's a lot of characters behind the scenes that are trying to manipulate what people say or learn, but there's a a limit to who, I guess, who you can name. And based on recordings or messages of what people said that could be demonstrated to directly have had an impact on the plan. And then if it involves censoring on social media platforms, why don't they have social media listed on that as well? Oh, yeah. And I do remember reading in the preliminary injunction that specifically said that the social media companies are not among the defendants for a reason. Because explained that the First Amendment is actually a limitation on government itself. It's a private right that we exercise, of course, we believe given by God. But the judge explained the First Amendment says Congress shall write no law abridging the freedom of speech or of the press. So it's basically the First Amendment is saying the government cannot suppress your right to speech. Mm-hmm. Now, Privately, people can do some things that, you know, like parents can tell their children don't say this and have punishments for saying naughty things. And, you know, society in general, there are spheres in which people will limit speech in certain ways. It's just the government is not in the business and has no right to dictate speech policy. So the judge specifically said, yeah, there's a reason that they're not in the defendants because private companies can have policies. Social media companies can say, we are not going to allow threats of violence on our platform and so on. Social media companies, even from when they started, they would have policies that, you know, okay, this is our private property. We own this platform, so we're going to have guidelines as to what people 
can submit and usually would have to say things like, we're not going to put up with threats of violence and using our platform to plan hitmen, you know, attacks and stuff like that. So this case, as the judge points out, has to do with government colluding with social media platforms and the injunction has to do with say hey government you cannot do that but when (laughs) (laughs) yeah like at what point is social media responsible too because they could have said no you know that's inhibiting free speech and we already have our policies Mm. you know if people are following it then we're not going to do anything I mean, it just seems like there's kind of two sides to that, Mm. that there should be some responsibility on the social media platform too, but maybe that's for a different time. It it could be for a different time. Yeah, they could be held liable, but, you know, we could see even from this preliminary injunction from the evidence submitted that government really held a gun to basically, metaphorically speaking, to some of these companies forcing them to do their bidding. Of course, there could have been benefits from the social media company side, too, to do it. But for the most part, it was like, okay, they really had to bend over backwards to satisfy the government's narratives. Looking for strategies that will help you engage in meaningful conversations with members of the Mormon Church? Well, if so, take a look at Sharing the Good News with Mormons, a new book produced by Harvest House Publishers and edited by Mormonism Research Ministries' Eric Johnson and Sean McDowell. Sharing the Good News with Mormons includes 24 helpful essays from two dozen Christian apologists, scholars, and pastors. Pick up your copy at the Utah Lighthouse Bookstore or order directly from mrm.org. So the case was about whether government was colluding with social media to censor free speech. And the preliminary injunction on July the 4th was about that the government has no right and they must cease from doing that. Now, from the originally filed complaint, which was on May 5th, 2022, it says, quote, having threatened and cajoled social media platforms for years to censor viewpoints and speakers disfavored by the left, senior government officials in the executive branch have moved into a phase of open collusion with social media companies to suppress disfavored speakers' viewpoints and content on social media platforms under the Orwellian guise of halting so-called disinformation, misinformation, and malinformation, unquote. And so those terms we hear a lot is this is misinformation or disinformation and so on. And (laughs) when you think about it, Who gets to define what those terms mean? And obviously the government wanted to. Basically, if it's something the government doesn't want said or spread, that they can just label it that and force social media companies to try their hardest to take down posts or shadow ban, limit the spread, whatever. Isn't that so frustrating? I mean, thankfully it's getting better now but just remembering when it was you had to be so careful what you said or what you talked about and what kind of posts you put on social media and I don't know it was just 
kind of this huge taboo that people felt so afraid to talk and to be able to communicate, which is so anti how God made us. God made us to be able to communicate and he gave us a brain to an intellect and wisdom to be able to talk through things and figure out like without discussions and without being able to freely talk through things, we don't learn. We don't come to an understanding of what is going to be the best situation to get through the pandemic or what is the best way to handle this if we're not able to talk about it. It's like, oh, that's just so frustrating because, again, it just feels like it's so against how God designed humans to be. And by trying to tell people to not talk, not use your brain, not use your intellect, and I guess because they're fools and they don't like truth and they like darkness, then that's how they're going to act. Good observations there, sweetheart. Reminds me, yeah, as I mentioned, Vivek Ramaswamy, I remember hearing him recently in a a speech saying, like, if you stop people from speaking, they're going to scream. And if you try to stop them from screaming, then they'll end up uh, destroying things or tearing down things and stuff. So, yeah, that's a good observation that it's like God designed us to have a brain, to process things, and intuitively to understand what makes sense is what's truth and we're supposed to speak truth we can't zip our lip on things that are obviously true and when the government deals with trying to suppress truth and pass narratives people are going to speak and when you try to stop them from speaking it causes chaos and the government cannot win on this regard and you think with a George Orwell's 1984, it's just ridiculous that you have books talking about this stuff. They're in the public consumption that there are these types of novels that lay out, here's what central government likes to try to do. These are the tactics that they do, and yet the government still goes ahead and does them. So, as we mentioned, Judge Doughty issued a preliminary injunction on July 4th, Independence Day, and what did the memorandum in support of his injunction look like? It was a 155-page ruling, and as I've read through it, it doesn't waste any words, so that seems like it would be bloat, but there is a lot to cover on it, and, you know, yeah, as I said, no wasted words. So now I understand why it was about a year out. (laughs) That was a lot of work to put into 155 pages. Yeah, I'm sure this wasn't something that he wrote in one evening, you know. He had to work on this for quite a while. That's why I was saying it was like a year from the original filing until he did the injunction. So (laughs) it probably took him that year to (laughs) write 155 pages As I said before, this isn't the official ruling in the case. A preliminary injunction means that the judge is acting to move to do something either to a plaintiff or defendant and say, okay, you need to be injuncted. (laughs) You need to do something or not do something until the ruling. And so the preliminary injunction is the judge basically saying, since the plaintiffs are likely to win the the case, and since they have argued that the actions from the defendant causes harm to them, I'm going to issue this injunction until the ruling. That's why it's called a preliminary injunction. 
And on page two of it, there's a lot of good stuff. And it's a, since it's a long injunction, I took some salient snippets from it. In page two, Judge Dowdy says, quote, If the allegations made by plaintiffs are true, the present case arguably involves the most massive attack against free speech in United States history. In their attempts to suppress alleged disinformation, the federal government, and particularly the defendants named here, are alleged to have blatantly ignored the First Amendment's right to free speech, unquote. That pretty much sums up the whole uh, memorandum here. So another great little snippet from this injunction is found on page three, where it says, quote, the principal function of free speech under the United States system of government is to invite dispute. It may indeed best serve its high purpose when it induces a condition of unrest, creates dissatisfaction with conditions as they are, or even stirs people to anger, unquote. I love that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it sounds, it makes you think right back to the time of the founding fathers and the Federalist Papers. This is why they explained this is why we need freedom of speech. It's not just because certain desired things are said. They recognize like the freedom of speech is not always so that pleasant speech gets said, but things that even people don't like. And sometimes, yeah, freedom of speech does allow things that are not desirable to be said, but they recognize that the freedom of speech allows truth to be said. And as I said in a previous episode, I believe that the free market of ideas allows the truth to prevail. Doesn't this remind you of in the Bible where it says that iron sharpeneth iron? Mm. And just the idea that you can't just have like one side trying to sharpen itself. Like you have to have two sides rubbing against each other to become sharper. Like if we don't have that other opinion or other viewpoint or these other ideas coming together, you don't progress. Like you don't move forward. And just even like when we're teaching our kids, for some reason, it reminds me of this. But <laughs> yes, we believe the creation account, but we don't just teach them the creation account. We also teach them what evolutionists believe, because that way they understand where evolutionists are coming from and they can see that contradiction there. And I think that just having that, like, two sides of it, that ability to decipher, to contrast, to evaluate whether something has truth in it or not, I think is so important. And I think that's where this quote just reminds me of the iron sharpening iron and that you have to be able to have those different opinions and different insight, even if it comes in the form of conflict, but... That's what makes you a stronger, more truth-based, truth-seeking people. Because it's important not only to know the truth, but to know the lies that make the truth even more visible <laughs> and more apparent. So on the, toward the conclusion, after laying out all the evidence, which we'll look at some of what the um, injunction mentions as evidence, but a page 89 of it in the conclusion, it says, quote, if there is a bedrock principle underlying the First Amendment, it is that the government may not prohibit the expression of an idea simply because society finds the idea itself offensive or disagreeable, unquote. 
And that also demonstrates, you know, the government may not prohibit expressing an idea. And so the First Amendment's a restriction on government. We've been talking about free speech. We've been talking about not censoring free speech. But what really specifically was this case about? Just free speech in general? In what ways did the government violate free speech and censor it? Well, page four of the injunction lists examples of suppression. It mentions the Hunter Biden laptop story that started in October 2020, the lab leak theory of the virus's origin, the efficiency of masks and lockdowns, the efficiency of the mRNA jabs, Anything negative or suspicious of how the 2020 presidential election went down, whether mass mail-in voting compromised election integrity, and even suppressing parody content about the defendants in the case, suppressing social media posts criticizing the Biden administration's economic policies, and also, anything criticizing President Biden in general. <laughs> <You> know, so, <laughs> it's so yeah. funny. It keeps getting more and more broad as oh, you yeah. read the list. And you could kind of see how it's like the censorship really started to heat up. It started off with things like, okay, well, we can't let conspiracy theories come out about the virus in early in 2020. But it's kind of like you give them an inch, they take a mile. And so where the first concern was, well, we have to make sure people follow the policies we want that we're trying to enact for this pandemic. And then, hey, now that we're in the business of censoring information and pushing narratives, we might as well do it on everything we want. And so, yeah. Of course, because it seemed like they wanted a certain outcome in the election. And once the guy they wanted won the election, now we got to make sure that, you know, he doesn't get into trouble. So for some reason, I think number eight that you listed, social <laughs> media posts criticizing the Biden administration's economic policies. <laughs> that one just makes me laugh because I can picture super old comics or cartoons <laughs> or things that would make fun of previous president's policies on economics and stuff it's like that's just kind of what people do they like don't agree with something and they kind of make fun of it and it's a very american thing to make fun of (laughs) parody joke about and criticize elected officials because the people vote and put them into office basically and then so okay they have the right to criticize them this we don't believe in the divine right of kings in america they're supposedly electing people and so in the process people can hold them accountable and make fun of them and criticize them (laughs) say you're not exercising our will since we put you in office so we can criticize you and make cartoons about you and so on (laughs) So, yes, what's really salient about this injunction is that it includes timelines of government agencies colluding with social media platforms and salient pieces of dialogue that happened, such as from emails, instant messages, and video conferences where people from departments within the government or the administration and press conferences, things they would say, so especially the ones private conversations from government officials with social media executives basically telling them you need to do this our way 
and we're getting tired of this information getting leaked out on your platform. So deal with it. And now we we mentioned quite a few things that were listed, but we're going to get into two specific topics that the injunction covers. And the first one is examples of censoring information having to do with our friendly virus, SARS-CoV-2, and so on. On page 15 of the injunction, it mentions that in April 9th, 2021, Rob Flaherty, who was the former deputy assistant to the president and director of digital strategy. Don't you just love some of these agencies and these positions and stuff like that? He told Facebook, it quotes him, I care mostly about what actions and changes you are making to ensure you're not making our country's vaccine hesitancy problem worse, unquote. So he has a certain result that he wants to happen. He, he mentions a problem. He doesn't like that there's such a thing as quote-unquote vaccine hesitancy because at this time, April 9th, 2021, you had big pharma companies really pushing for the jab. And I know this was leading up to the point where President Biden would had the infamous moment where he said, you know, we're losing patience with people who are still not taking the jab. Flaherty also threatened Facebook. You know, this is pretty big here. Flaherty threatened Facebook with being partly responsible for January 6th. So he's basically telling him, you're to blame. If anyone died, any violence happened, you were complicit in it with people organizing and using your platform and communicating. And so all that blood is on your hands. By threatening them with being partly responsible for January 6th, he pressed them that they might also be culpable for people dying if they didn't suppress vaccine hesitancy on their platform. So Facebook was trying to cooperate and stuff, but of course these officials would look like, I see this post hasn't been taken down yet. Here's another one. Have you been suppressing that enough? Like, I'm sick of seeing anything get by on your platform and you think like how are the employees of facebook and other social media companies supposed to program ai to figure out oh here's another post let's automatically delete it or actively looking through everyone's posts trying to make sure that this stuff doesn't get out it's like a a fool's errand here but the government would just keep waving that sword of damocles over them telling him you have got to suppress this you're not doing enough yikes (laughs) So another example with some of the virus stuff that they were trying to suppress is found on page 22. So on May 5th of 2021, the press secretary, previous one, Jen Psaki, publicly pressured social media companies with legal consequences and threats of antitrust if they didn't up their aggression of censoring posts against the administration's virus policies. Jab, propaganda, and mask mandates and stuff like that. It's like, we're seeing this stuff. We're seeing people posting this stuff and saying, you need to be more aggressive. Okay, they were trying to be as aggressive as they could, but yeah, it's like, we don't like the idea that there's anything out there. We don't like the idea that we're seeing people actually posting and not agreeing with us. 
So also page 50 later on, it gets to talking about Dr. Anthony Fauci and his involvement with the propaganda about the origins of the virus. And so if you didn't know, this injunction actually makes clear that the lab leak theory, which is now pretty much mainstream right now, but at the time, early in 2020, even before the policies started taking effect, the lockdowns and stuff, the lab leak hypothesis was pretty common among scientists. But on February 1st, 2020, Dr. Anthony Fauci convinced fellow scientists away from the lab leak theory to the idea that the virus originated in nature. So that wasn't the first or prominent theory, but Fauci wanted to make sure it was. And of course, the injunction mentions the fact that Fauci was involved in the funding of gain of function research at the Wuhan lab. And so he didn't want that to be what people talked about. So Fauci was involved in a paper entitled The Proximal Origin of COVID-19. Basically, he would review multiple drafts of this, and they had already planned that this would eventually make it into Nature magazine. But it's like, okay, we got to get this right because we want to make sure that this becomes prominent. And so finally, on March 17th, 2020, so that's basically, I think it's two days after the lockdown policy started nationwide, And that was to be the official position on the origin of the virus. Even though, as we see, he knew that was not the case. And the paper goes on to page 53 to expose more of what Fauci was doing. So Fauci claimed that common drugs like hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine could only be known to be effective to treat the virus if gone through meticulous, randomized, double-blind, placebo-based studies. Yeah, so that kind of sounds familiar, you know, and as we talked about the whole Colorado laws, that the abortion pill reversal, we can't allow that because we don't have any randomized, double-blind, placebo-based studies for it. But things like hydroxychloroquine were shown to be effective basically through evidence-based medicine. And the same with the abortion pill reversal protocol. But yeah, when they want a certain outcome, they're going to put the criteria for allowing it to be super duper high. And then, you know, ultimately Fauci was successful for a time in getting his own failed drug that would ultimately prove to be fatal in about 50% of the cases used in hospitals. Oh, remdesivir. Remdesivir, yeah. So he knew that, I don't remember reading this in the injunction, but yes, Fauci's favored protocol was using remdesivir, even though that basically was 50% fatal, if I remember correctly, and Mm -hmm. because he wanted the patented drugs that he liked for basically experimenting, (laughs) and he didn't like the ones that were proven and were not patented and not under his control to be used because he ultimately wanted to lead up to pushing for a jab that he wanted everyone to take and get rid of the control group. So pages 56 through 57 of the injunction mentions that Facebook asked the CDC if ivermectin wasn't a good treatment and if it could make people 
hesitant and avoid the jab. So they're asking, would you think this wasn't because wouldn't it cause this? You know, because they're trying to guess at what the CDC would policy would be like. And the CDC replied that the claim that ivermectin could work against the virus was not accurate in all caps. That's just a small taste of what this injunction lists as far as timelines and dialogues demonstrating censoring information about the virus policies. Ding dong! Jehovah's Witnesses. Ding dong! Mormons. Christian, are you ready to defend the faith when false religions ring your doorbell? Do you know what your Muslim and Jewish friends believe? You will if you get Andrew Rappaport's book, What Do They Believe? When we witness to people, we need to present the truth, but it is very wise to know what they believe, and you will get Andrew Rappaport's book at whatdothebelieve.com. And now we have the examples about how the government suppressed the Hunter Biden laptop story. And I think this one is pretty explosive and it's become recently, as of this recording, a pretty hot topic. You mentioned, sweetheart, how things are kind of getting better and that information's getting out. And we realize as we look back, like, wow, they really held the reins, you know, in 2020. The government really held the reins of control in this stuff. And this injunction makes that clear. Page 61 of the injunction talking about the Hunter Biden laptop, the FBI, knowing what was likely to become news, warned companies to be wary of what they called hack and dump or hack and leak operations. So, they know that a story is eventually going to come out because the FBI, <laughs> they're aware of this thing. So it's kind of like, hey, social media companies, you need to start adding this to your policies. FBI alert, beware of hack and dump or hack and leak operations. <laughs> wink, wink, nudge, nudge. So on page 62, it goes on to show that the social media companies added hacked materials to the types of content that would go against their policies. (laughs) So they're adding to their policies the information the FBI passed along Hmm. to them. So then social media companies would censor posts that were spreading stuff that had to do with hacked materials and wonder what that would end up being (laughs) that the FBI is warning about. So page 63 If you remember, you might be aware of the fact that the New York Post originally posted a bombshell original story about the Hunter Biden laptop being discovered on October 14th of 2020. And we know that that was less than a month, only about three weeks away from the election in November of 2020. And the government did not want this story to get out. The FBI, remember how it was warning about hack and dump and hacked materials? Well, hey, here comes an example of it. (laughs) I wonder, coincidence. So the New York Post came out with their story and then very quickly, within a matter of a day or two, if I remember correctly, anything sharing that and the New York Post was forced to remove that. 
So how did this happen? Well, how did this you know laptop thing happen? So Hunter Biden supposedly dropped off the laptop at a Delaware repair shop in April of 2019. And the FBI had obtained Hunter Biden's laptop. They had basically forced the owner of the shop to hand it over. And the FBI got it on December 9th of 2019. So think, the FBI had possession of Hunter Biden's laptop on December of 2019. This was about 10 months before the New York Post's story about it. So when the FBI is telling social media companies months later to avoid hack and dump stories, like you need to add this to your policies to suppress information about hacked materials and so on, They had this laptop back in December of 2019. So when the New York Post posted the original story and then pretty quickly it came out that, okay, 50 informants signed a letter saying that this was Russian disinformation. The FBI obviously knew this wasn't so-called Russian disinformation because they had the laptop. They knew what was on it. Being responsible for that narrative couldn't have been anything other than trying to prevent the story from swaying the results of the election in 2020. It was obvious. If anyone knows anything about this story, even now from mainstream outlets, they know that's what the FBI was doing. Now, one could debate whether it actually did affect the election, but what is certain is that the FBI didn't want this story to affect the election. So that concludes some of the specific cases of the injunction, but this case keeps moving forward. So what kind of happens next in our timeline here? I'm sure the judge knew that the Biden administration wasn't just going to throw up their hands and say, okay, you win. They're going to use whatever tool they have in their tool belt, as often happens in these cases. So July 5th, the next day, after the preliminary injunction, the Biden administration appealed the preliminary injunction. And on July 6th, they filed a motion to stay the injunction, claiming that it endangers the public because the government just can't do its thing you know (laughs) they also claimed that the injunction was too vague and broad so that they wouldn't know how to comply with it you know it's like okay the government has important functions that they need to do for the security and the public interest but how are we supposed to comply with this how do we even know that when we're trying to do our jobs we don't run afoul of this thing you know it's like hey Stop colluding with social media to suppress, take down users' posts. That's how you comply. Just stop doing stuff like that. And on July 9th, Judge Doughty denied the motion to stay. And I think his denial memorandum is, you know, although it's shorter, it's just as good and kind of humorous to read the mind of this judge. It's just as good as the original uh, preliminary injunction. So, page three of the denial, Judge Doughty says, quote, The government's assertion of grave harm, therefore, boils down to the claim that it should be allowed to continue violating the First Amendment. In the end, their position is fundamentally defiant toward the court's judgment. 
It demonstrates that the government will continue violating First Amendment rights by censoring core political speech on social media as soon as it can get away with it. The motion to stay should be denied, unquote. <laughs> and then later on on the page, he also says, quote, The injunction addresses a great deal of unlawful conduct because defendants have committed a great deal of unlawful conduct, as the court's 82 pages of detailed factual findings demonstrate, unquote. You know. <laughs> and so what we mentioned were some salient points and summaries and stuff of the 82 pages there. <laughs> Now, July 14th, the Biden administration filed an appeal with the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. So wanting to appeal to an appeals court and in a two to one ruling, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals granted a temporary hold. They didn't give any arguments for why they should, but they're figuring, okay, this is the normal course of how things work. The defendants are making it an emergency, so we'll make it an emergency. They scheduled the next available oral hearing date, so August the 10th, is when oral arguments will be heard on whether to extend the stay. And so this is one of those cases where, okay, if the state doesn't get stayed, possibly then the judge, Judge Doughty, might issue the final ruling in the case. They'll probably appeal it again, and it would probably eventually go up to the Supreme Court. Now, the way things stand, we know how the Supreme Court would likely rule on it. They would probably agree with Judge Doughty here. (laughs) So, yes, this is a a continuing battle, but it's a battle for truth. We have some verses that kind of aptly fit this particular case. So Proverbs twelve nineteen through 20, it talks about the lip of truth shall be established forever, but a lying tongue is but for a moment. Deceit is in the heart of them that imagine evil, but to the counselors of peace is joy. And we definitely see that in just this whole case. And it kind of gives us hope, too, because sometimes it's like, oh, my goodness, the government is like so corrupt and they just want to keep trying to push their agenda. And it's like, OK, but a lying tongue is just for a moment. Truth endures forever. So it's just a good reminder that, OK, we have hope in truth because we have hope in Jesus Christ, who is truth. That's where truth comes from. I definitely like that hope there. John 3.20, Jesus kind of aptly describes the government in this case. It says, For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. So it's like, hey, if you got something to hide, you want to live in darkness, you don't like the light exposing the truth, you want to run away from it. Now, 1 Timothy 6.5, the Apostle Paul says, Perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness from such, withdraw thyself. So, yes, I wish we can withdraw from the government in this case. But, yeah, this is the way some people think. Like, the government's a good example of it. Perverse, corrupt minds, destitute of truth. And they want their gain, and they suppose that, hey, it's for the good. It's for the public interest that the government argues that we have to be able to censor things that just so happen to keep giving them power. Imagine that. So Francis Schaeffer has this great question. He says, how then shall we live? 
And I think Galatians 5, 13 through 15 just gives us some great truths about, okay, what do we do? And just like the government was saying, they didn't know how to abide by these rulings. It's too vague and so broad, they wouldn't know how to comply with it and stuff. Okay, well, Galatians tells us exactly how we're supposed to do this. It says in verse 13, For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. Verse 14, For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. And I just love those verses because, okay, how shall we live then? We live by loving our neighbor as ourselves and by serving one another. If we're serving one another, we're not going to be trying to hide truth and suppress speech and create all this chaos that the government's been doing. But they're not living by that truth of serving others or loving thy neighbor as thyself. And I think that that's just a good way to kind of examine ourselves even. I mean, it's so easy for us to point out and it's like, look how corrupt government is and what they've been doing. But if we think about, we could easily be in that place if it wasn't for the fact that we acknowledge that we're fallen, that we're sinners, and we needed Jesus Christ to save us. And now we have the Holy Spirit inside of us that can help us to be that servant, to have that love for one another, and to seek truth and proclaim truth. And I think that this is just a good way to remember this is how we live. Good thoughts, sweetheart. The scriptures definitely show the way how we can have a civil society if we speak truth, seek to live by truth and live by love. And the government clearly doesn't like that. They seek to divide, make people bite and devour each other. And they're biting and devouring people for their own gain. If we live according to the Bible's prescription and how Christ's example and his person and work, we wouldn't have these problems and we won't have these problems when Jesus returns to rule and reign. And so that's definitely something we look forward to. And in the meantime, pray for how the Missouri versus Biden case will go, because as the judge mentioned, it's really the biggest case demonstrating the suppression of the freedom of speech in our history. And so stay tuned for the next episode of Truth Espresso, and God bless. Thank you for waking up with Truth Espresso. Good morning, and God bless your day. Hey friends, Daniel Minnick here again. If you liked waking up to this episode of Truth Espresso, I would really appreciate it if you would rate it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever application you use to listen to Truth Espresso.